This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. From waves of new technology, societal upheaval, pandemics, and natural disasters, it seems now the rule, rather than the exception, disruption, both digital and physical, is a continuous force affecting governments, businesses, and society. Traditional business continuity and disaster recovery playbooks, born when disruption was an exception, seem no longer sufficient. Rather, government executives should plan for continuous disruption and pursue an adaptive approach that rests on a foundation of intrinsic agility. What is adaptive government? How does adaptability differ from resiliency? What can government agencies do to become more adaptive? I'll explore these questions and much more with Nick Evans, author of the IBM Center Report, A Guide to Adaptive Government, Preparing for Disruption. So Nick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great. Thanks, Michael. And it's great to great to be with you. So Nick, uh, why is disruption now the rule and not the exception today? And would you describe for us what you mean by disruption and what you mean by business as disrupted? Yes, certainly. So I think uh, we're all familiar with the the term business as usual. And for many decades, we'd, you know, we've felt like we operate business or we operate government. Um, and there's a steady state playing field and we're just operating where um, we have um, operating principles, procedures, processes, and we're just running the business and it's just business as usual. Well, I think with the state of disruption now, as we look at any type of disruption, whether it's you know, business disruption, uh, disruption from pandemics, extreme weather, geopolitical forces, whatever the disruption, we're now seeing it becoming not really the, the exception, but more the norm, right? So what it's doing is it's putting pressure on this old notion of doing business as usual. We're now moving into an era where we we really need to think about how do we do business as disrupted in an environment, an external environment, where the business is continually disrupted almost day by day. Excellent. Yeah. And your report, uh, A Guide to Adaptive Government Prepare for Disruption, you know, you you introduce the concept of a government adaptive enterprise. And I was wondering if you could help us. What do you mean by that in the context of your report and your research? Yes, certainly. I, I think the, the notion of adaptability is something that really hasn't gained a lot of attention. So there's been a lot of effort and focus on obviously things like sustainability and resiliency. And there's a very large body of work around that. And these are desirable things that, um, you know, organizations, government, business, um, everyone wants to be sustainable. You want a resilient business, a resilient organization, a resilient infrastructure. But really the hypothesis around the research is that adaptability can be actually the, the cornerstone 
to achieving these sustainability and resiliency goals, as well as a number of other desirable um, strategic goals for a city or even a country. And so when we think about adaptability, the really interesting thing there is you're dealing with both threats and opportunities. So where resiliency is really a risk management strategy, and it's only dealing with managing risk, when you think about adaptability, we're now dealing with both risk management as a strategy, but also it's a strategy for innovation. So it's really all about how do we maximize the productivity of a city, of a government agency or a business uh, through these ups and downs of disruption. Not just risk management and resiliency, but really innovating both through the threats and the opportunities that the business faces. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, you take the concept that you outlined um, in the report and just explained. I want to see how you can apply it to government and what is meant by adaptive government and how does this concept or this characteristic of intrinsic agility factor into adaptive government? Sure. So I think the, you know, the main premise is having adaptability, having an adaptive government or an adaptive enterprise. The reason you do that is because you want to react to change. And it's far better to actually do it with intrinsic agility, bake that ability to change into the organization versus, you know, scratching your head and saying, gee, things have changed in the outside world. Now I need to take a month or six months to figure out how do we react to that. So it's a much more proactive approach. Instead of dealing with change after the fact, what we're doing with intrinsic agility and this this idea of adaptive government is we're building that ability in, we're engineering it in to the way the organization operates. So it's part of the DNA of the organization and a, a, you know, a really good example I like to give is the, the military's DEFCON system that's been around for obviously for decades. But you know, if you think about the military and the, the state of readiness, we don't know as a, as, a, as a nation or as the military forces, we don't know what's happening tomorrow in a week's time, in a month's time, or even in the next few minutes. But because we have the, um, the DEFCON system, if you will, or frameworks like that, you have a set of predefined operating procedures and postures that you can jump to very quickly. So that's the whole idea of having that readiness built in, pre-rehearsed, pre-trained, everyone knows the, the role, and you can quickly kind of jump to that modality. So that's kind of a, an actual practical example of you know, putting adaptability into the, into the military in this case. That's an excellent, excellent example of its practical application. You know, Nick, I was I was wondering about the role. What role does digital transformation take in realizing the vision of adaptive government? Yeah, I think it's um it's actually many, you know, many people think digital transformation is kind of the end game, right? We all want to digitally transform and it's the solution to respond to change. Well, actually, if you think about it, transformation is a continuous journey. So that's why we've been on the, you know, the digital transformation bandwagon for probably more than, what, 10 years now. You know, all the, you know, the press, the media, we're always talking about digital transformation. Um, but you, the trouble with transformation, you're never there because whatever you're transforming to, it's usually the current state and the future's never fixed. So the, by the time you transform, things have changed and you've got to transform again. 
So this, this whole idea is that digital transformation is only the first step, but to really get to the vision of the adaptive government, you've got to bake in this intrinsic agility and use adaptability to solve for change as part of the business or the operating model instead. So it's kind of really the, you know, if you think of um, a future vision where government works really well in all of its people, processes, and technology, step one might be digital transformation, but really step two and the end game, and I think what comes after digital transformation, you know, is is really this this idea of the adaptive government. You know, and and Nick, um, it's a really interesting part of your report, and you you point out, and you just kind of underscored it that. You know, digital transformation for an enterprise, and in, in our case, we're talking about in a lot, of, a lot of instances, government agencies, um, may not be sufficient. And where I'm going with this is, I'm wondering: a, is it sufficient? And I think you kind of alluded to the fact that it's not the end goal. Um, but how does hyper automation factor into this whole effort, and what are the benefits of this particular effort? Yeah, I think I think hyper automation is um, an example that we we put into the, the white paper, the, the research report, to kind of show how, you know, although we can achieve something like 20% cost savings by 2025, according to Gartner, with hyper-automation, we're still optimizing just for the current state. We're, make, we're making it as efficient as possible, um, but we're not really planning for future needs and future operating conditions. So it's a bit like um, you know the old uh, the old saying about skating to where the puck is going. What we're doing with hyper automation is we're really just getting to where the puck was more quickly. And so you know definitely, I think my recommendation for you know government agencies and enterprises would be definitely pursue hyper automation. And that's really to to quickly define it. It's really the use of a variety of tools, things like you know scripts. Uh, chatbots, robotic process automation, AI, whatever you can use to automate the business, um, you apply that and then you apply it across all the areas of, of the enterprise where it makes sense, where it can add value. So hyper-automation is really kind of automation on steroids. It's really just taking all the tools at your disposal and applying it across the entire enterprise. Now, the only problem with that is, great, you're making things efficient, but again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's really not taking into account future needs and future requirements. Nick, I was wondering, we talked about earlier sort of the digital transformation of an enterprise or a government agency is gets you halfway there. But adaptive government is really the end, end game. And you, you, you really do a wonderful job in your report of, of articulating why. Uh, I was wondering, to what extent does... Does getting there rest on on the leveraging of ecosystems and network approaches, collaboration? And if I'm a government executive, Nick, what type of questions should I be asking in order to get me there? Sure, I think when you know when we start thinking about ecosystems, um, you know, one of the benefits as, as we try to build an agile enterprise, one of the benefits is by pulling in your ecosystem and your partners, you can basically spread the load, spread the workload. And it kind of goes back to in innovation and the idea that, you know, companies like and teams, they like to think their everything is innovated in their team or their organization. 
But the truth is, the more you can pull innovations and IP from other other teams, even within your own organization, but other groups, other teams, or externally, uh, the better you are. So it's it's kind of that not invented here mindset, and kind of countering that, and starting to pull in IP wherever you can you can amass it. So th- this whole idea of um, the adaptive government, the agency or department, you're not on your own. You don't have to solve this all yourself. There's a lot of tech partners and systems integrators and other consultancies and other providers, service providers, that may have pieces of the puzzle, right? So you don't have to invent all this yourself. You can kind of think of the platform a bit like an app store, you know, take that kind of app store mindset, pull in all those different apps that you need um, to kind of build your your operating model. Um, so it's all about the ecosystem. It, it's making it a team sport and, um, you know, just really pulling in IP as you need it to really get that adaptability, right? That's a great point. And, you know, we, we started our conversation, Nick, recognizing that um, disruption is becoming more than the rule rather than the exception. What would you say, Nick, to a skeptic who might say, is this really true or has disruption always been around and nothing has really changed? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And we, we actually spent a lot of time in the in the white paper actually kind of answering that question because I, I knew it was going to come up and people can, um, you know, kind of play devil's advocate, right? And say, well, yeah, we, you know, we've had disruption, you know, since the, the industrial revolution, right? Um, and, and even before that. So disruption is just a constant. And why is it, you know, the question would be, why now? What's different? What's changed now versus 10 years ago or 15 years ago? But the interesting thing is when we went back to the to do some research, we looked at the what are known as the pestle forces. So those are the environmental forces that affect any entity, political, economic, societal, technology, legal, and environmental. If you look at any of those forces that we're confronted with today, and you can think of this even as a, you know, as a civilian, you know, a citizen. Every one of us are kind of seeing all these these forces, these disruptions across those pestle forces. And you can pick any one and look at the data, and the data is telling us that, you know, we're seeing almost a hockey stick change in both the not only the scale of the disruptions that are hitting us, things like COVID and climate change but also the, um, the frequency. So what we did in the research is we actually looked very carefully at both the, um, the cost of disruption and how that was changing, as well as the frequency of disruption. And if I, you know, if I pick a few examples, I mean, we're now, in terms of costs of disruption, we're now dealing with trillions of dollars impact. So this isn't even you know, millions or billions. You know, climate change, for example, Estimates are, you know, that it's going to cost the U.S. economy 14.5 trillion in the next 50 years. Um, Hurricane Katrina cost 250 billion in estimated damage and um, economic impact. Pandemics, you know, when we talk about COVID, we're starting to see numbers, um, you know, in the what the 10 trillion range in terms of future loss of earnings. So a lot of lot of big numbers here. And then, you know, if, if we look at frequency of these disruptions, if we pick on hurricanes, you know, Cat 4 and Cat 5 hurricanes, 
those have doubled. The number of those category hurricanes has doubled uh, since 1990, and it's now averaging about 18 per year. We can almost challenge the reader. Um, wherever you look, you're going to see this this big spike in, you know, the cost and frequency of disruption. And um, you know, even just in the last few weeks or months, we've started to see in the headlines a lot of a lot of press about generative AI. So that's another disruption that we didn't put it in the report because it's just hit us in the last couple of months. But I think that's another one that just has massive potential to um, be both a threat and an opportunity that we're going to have to confront. How does adaptability differ from resiliency? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, with Nick Evans, author of the IBM Center Report, A Guide to Adaptive Government, Preparing for Disruption. I'd like to uh, switch gears a bit, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Nick, and get into uh, another aspect of your report. You, you do an, a wonderful and necessary job of distinguishing adaptive systems from resilient systems. And sometimes in the popular parlance, popular imagination, they're, they're used interchangeably. And that's not necessarily a good idea. They're two different concepts. I was hoping you could explain to, for us the difference between them. And more importantly, how do they differ philosophically as well? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. A resilient system is almost completely the opposite of, of an adaptive system. So the resilient system... What it's trying to do is just recover. It goes back to that whole business as usual discussion that we had earlier, you know, business as usual versus business as disrupted. So the resilient system, what it wants to do is recover or regain its authentic form um, as quickly as possible. Um, so that these kind of resilient systems, they're often very brittle. Um, they're one size fits all. They're trying to restore or maintain the steady state and they have a risk management philosophy. Now, if you take an adaptive system, what it's doing is it wants to um, have that intrinsic agility to continuously maximize value by rapidly reconfiguring itself all the time. So what it's doing is it's continuously optimizing. It's not just a one-time restoration to get back to steady state, 
but the the adaptive systems continuously you know reading the environment and optimizing for ambient conditions so it's flexible you know it has multiple configurations instead of one size fits all um, and it's really built on an uh, innovation philosophy as opposed to a risk management philosophy. I think that's a wonderful distinction that you make there. And it's a, and then at the end of the report, you kind of say they can complement one another. But, you know, Nick, given that disruption is now, and you do a terrific job in the report explaining that it's, it is now the rule and you, the arguments there, not the exception. The next question, as a, if, I'm, if I'm a leader of an organization, an enterprise or a government agency, becomes how do I plan to deal with it? How can I be proactive around it? Should organizations simply plan for this type of disruption using traditional business continuity and disaster recovery approaches, or is there something more required? And I was wondering if you'd elaborate. Yes, I, I think, um, you know, in, in, in the old days, we, look, we like to give the example of, um, you know, maybe a, an agency and they have a an IT shop and they have a data center and the the, the BCDR, Business Continuity Disaster Recovery um, handbook, right? It says, oh, if your data center gets flooded once a year or whenever, you know, not not even once a year, but once in 10 years, what you do is you you whip out that handbook and it tells you how to how to recover and get back to business as usual. So that whole paradigm has to change because now we want to, we still need that, you know, we still need disaster response and disaster recovery. And we need those those procedures but we have to kind of start to think about how do we use them in a more proactive way. So it's really about trying to bake that in to your business and how it operates and continuously flexing and changing how the business operates instead of this once a year, pull out the handbook and figure out what to do. And so a, a, you know, a good example there is I think maybe you think about COVID and um, all the restaurants, right? They had to they didn't really have a playbook, right? But they they wanted to maximize um, really, it was kind of a trade-off, right? It was safety versus profit, right? And so if you're closed, you know, that's too extreme and you're you're actually, the zero profit, there's 100% safety, but zero profit. So I think what the, what the restaurants found was they could have a couple of different configurations in the restaurant with different spacing and I think everyone, you know, play in the early days of COVID, everyone was, was playing around with, you know, 12 feet of spacing or six feet. So they figured out how do we shuffle the, um, the tables in the restaurant to kind of maximize revenue, but ensure safety. So it's always a compromise, but they figured it wasn't just on or off. The switch wasn't on or off, just, you know, open or close, but let's figure out what we can do to kind of be safe um, but open to the extent that we can and get as many people in that is still safe. So it's almost back to the DEFCON situation where you have multiple modes of operating. Um, so whereas BCDR is kind of either you're running or you're recovering, you're running the, biz the data center or you're trying to get it back online, this whole idea now with, with the adaptive enterprise and adaptive government is try to think of those modalities of how you might need to operate when you're faced with disruption. How many different ways do you need to operate the business now and configure the business to run in, in that way? And you may find it's, um, you know, it could be two, three, four, five different ways, or maybe it's totally digitized and um, 
you know, cloud computing, for example, and, and you flex as needed based on demand. So it's much more of a, it's kind of a different mindset where you really kind of, um, it's real-time sense and respond, you know, versus that, that um, older philosophy. You also point out, Nick, that the goal of any adaptive system is to continuously optimize for, as you called it, the ambient conditions, ensuring the best possible out, uh, you know, uptime and business outcomes um, in, in the examples you offered. Uh, I was wondering if you could share some examples, um, and they are alluded to in your report for the IBM Center, of adaptive systems already in place today. Sure. Yes, you can, you can really think of them as, um, you can break it out as either physical enablers of adaptability or digital. So what these things do is they're actually tools that we can use to build in. You know, we, we talked about intrinsic agility. Um, okay, so how, how do you make that real? How do you make that happen? Well, the tools you can use, they're physical or digital and so you can basically pick the, the tool that you need for the specific task. So it could be in the physical world, we have things like modular design and construction. So having that, that modular approach um, to building or even football stadiums, as in the World Cup, in 2022 in Qatar, they actually kind of built their own modular stadium called Stadium 974, and it was made up of 974 shipping containers. And the whole idea was that we can, you know, we can build the, the stadium uh, very quickly. It's a very, you know, environmentally positive approach because, you know, we're making use of um, existing containers, reducing waste, and they're all, you know, prefabricated. We can repurpose them. And after the event, after the World Cup, we can actually tear this down, de deconstruct it and recycle it after the tournament. So these kind of um, tools and techniques like modular design and construction are a great way to kind of actually make this real. Another good example, if, you know, if we think about more digital technology, um, there's a kind of traffic control system. They're, they're actually called adaptive traffic control systems or ATCS. What they do is they're, they're actually reading real-time traffic patterns and they're optimizing traffic flow using both camera detectors, you know, built-in AI and machine learning. And so that continuously adapts to the traffic patterns that it sees. And the, the net result is you can reduce travel time by 20%. You can reduce waiting time by 40%. And the number of stops in the travel corridor by about 30%. So there's a lot of, you know, solid... ROI type business benefits when you start putting this um, these adaptive enablers to work. Yeah, it's an excellent illustration. Yeah, you know, um, Nick, an enterprise, an organization, as they adopt uh, disruptive technologies, there are typically, you point out in the report, three waves in terms of timing around each trend and uh, that they can catch. Each has a different type of benefit. I was hoping you could highlight some of those trends uh, the three waves and the benefits associated with them. Sure, and uh, you know this this concept kind of it it applies mostly for enterprise organizations, um, but I think for you know the government listeners, I I think we can still there's still some interesting takeaways here, and it's really that you know when when you start pulling in these technologies, you really want to think about kind of where they are in in their market adoption, 
And so it's almost back to the, um, not necessarily the innovation hype cycle, but really the kind of maturity bell curve that technology goes through from early adoption to, you know, main, early mainstream, late mainstream. So when the technology first appears, it can be very, very disruptive. It's things like blockchain, digital twins, AR, VR, the metaverse, right? These are all good examples of the emerging wave because they're, they're still, for the most part, in early stages of adoption. For an enterprise, this is where they can create the new business model, deliver new products and services, and really be transformational in their industry. But also there's kind of the caveat because there's not a lot of learnings there. There's not a lot of examples and case studies. So you really have to be a pioneer and figure out how you're going to use the the technology and get the business value. And then when we get to the next wave, it's really more the different, what we call the differentiating wave. This is where you can still differentiate with the technology, but there's a lot of, um, and you can achieve competitive advantage and you can you can differentiate but there's a lot of examples already out there. So in this wave, it's kind of a bit of a safer bet because you know the, the ROI examples. So we could take those traffic systems. That's quite a safe bet because it's already out there. It's proven. There's ROI already realized. So we can make that safe you know, investment there in that technology, maybe as part of our adaptive um, strategy for a city, for example. The third wave is called the business value wave. And this one is really where it becomes table stakes. So it's things like cl- you know, cloud, mobile computing, and so on, that's pretty much pervasive in everything we do. And you know, here, the, the examples are um, just you know, pervasive in ed- you know, most industries. And it's just, you can't really differentiate with it or get competitive advantage, but it's proven enough that you can invest and it's going to be that um, that kind of keep the lights on type of operation. It's going to give you that day-to-day business value. So I think as, as organizations think about, okay, well, what tools do we want to pick to be more agile and to become an adaptive government? You've got to think about those three different waves and the pros and cons of each one. And you, you may find you need to actually assemble kind of a mix of, of all three. So you may be relying on the table stakes of cloud to give you that flexibility to scale up and down based on you know visitors to the website or whatever that might be or your your SaaS applications, but you're also experimenting with um, AI and machine learning. Um, you're looking at digital twins, and you're kind of pushing the envelope a bit more as well. All excellent points and great advice. I was wondering, organizational agility, and you make this point in the report, is not achieved as you know, just, just by the cloud-first strategy or flexible workforce strategies or any of this, but um, a well-planned holistic approach that that goes across the organization, whether it's the business uh, or the operating model, processes, products, and services. I, I was hoping you could offer some examples of this happening, Nick. Yeah, sure. I think you know, I think when we think about agility, we think of, you know, maybe agile development and things like that, or we might think about cloud computing. And that, you know, that's a good first step, but you really have to think about it across the organization's layers, right? So from strategy to people to process and technology. The really interesting thing is you can actually build in this agility at every layer. So for example, a you know, what's known as a platform business model at the strategy layer, 
that actually has a lot of agility baked in. So those are things like the Apple App Store, um, Airbnb, uh, Uber, et cetera, you know, very powerful models where you're, you know, maybe you're a marketplace, right? And you're, you're convening buyers and sellers, those kind of platforms, or the other one is the App Store, which is more of a innovate on top approach, right? Where everyone's adding their IP and they innovate on top of the platform to provide more functionality. So all of those things have a lot of baked in agility because they're not, um, they're not limiting you. You can have more participants, you can have more apps and the business model kind of even gets stronger as, as you grow. If we think about the people layer, you can think about agility in the workforce and things like gig economy, using labor from the gig economy to you know, supplement shortages and fill in the gaps. So that way we can kind of scale up and down as we need to based on budget and so on. So, you know, the, really the best approach to getting this agility in the organization is to kind of use all the different levers and think about strategy, people, process, and technology. And then finally at the, at the tech layer, you know, we talked about both physical and digital enablers. So physical, it could be 3D printing it could be robotics and drones. It could be modular design and construction. On the digital side, it's things like cloud, but it's also things like digital twins and software-defined networks, AIML, uh, things like smart contracts. All of these things can kind of give you that um, that flexibility in the um, you know kind of programmed into the code and how how these systems operate. How can government agencies become more adaptive? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, with Nick Evans, author of the IBM Center Report, A Guide to Adaptive Government, Preparing for Disruption. You know, Nick, I w- was wondering if we could take some time out and uh, and learn more about yourself and your expertise. Would you tell us more about your career path and your background and what your expertise? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I probably spent um, 20 or 30 years in uh, consulting. So, you know, started off um, actually back, even back in the going back, I won't go back 
you know, way back, but um, <laughs> maybe back to the 90s, um, I, I joined um, PwC, and it was a very interesting time in the mid-90s because we were just starting to, you know, society was just starting to look at where the web and what we could do with the web. And it quickly, you'll, you'll remember, right, it quickly went from static web pages around 95 or so. People started figuring out what if we hook up a database to that, you know, and then we had the whole e-commerce era and e-business all the way up to, you know, 99 or so. So big era of change. And um, I was fortunate to be able to co-found the internet consulting business for PwC at the time. And um, it was quite interesting, you know, pitching internet projects to corporate executives. And, you know, the, the response we'd get was, gee, the UI looks really bad. It's not safe. It's not secure. So we saw all those, you know, commonplace issues that the, the industry had to grapple with. But we saw it quickly go from, you know, 50K pilots and so on. Within a few years, you know, the, um, the major systems integrators were tackling, you know, multi-million dollar projects. So it was a very quick on-ramp from, you know, those small pilots to broader deployments. And then uh, from PwC, I went to KPMG and had the opportunity to run the emerging technology consulting business which was a really interesting position. At the time, there was a lot going on with wireless and, and RFID. And we, we actually did the first um, active and passive RFID demo for the army. And it was kind of a, a pharmaceutical supply chain demonstration for the US army. And we looked at it um, to track those, those pharmaceuticals all the way from the item case palette and container level you know, shipments overseas and so on. And it was the first time that a, a systems integrator had kind of pulled all the pieces together and, a, you know, a lot of moving parts. So we had active tags, passive tags, uh, <laughs> you know, printers, middleware, etc. So I think those kind of, you know, technical solutions have a, again, we go back to that whole ecosystem discussion, right? So it, take, it takes a real ecosystem to pull it off. So we, we had to pull in a variety of partners to, it, to even build the solution, right? From hardware, software, et cetera. Yeah, and then to just kind of wrap up the story, I, I went on to, to Unisys and um, was their head of, head of global innovation uh, for over 10 years, and then spent a couple of years at uh, Gartner um, advising clients on innovation, digital transformation, and also sustainability. And I'm currently with WGI, which is an engineering firm out of Florida. And we're about 600 people, so a smaller organization. And we focus on, you know, engineering services. I, I'm the chief innovation officer there. And we're actually taking some of the adaptability research and coming up with a what we call a city adaptability index to help cities actually self-assess their level of adaptability, you know, across their different strategic goals. So kind of looking at adaptability through the lens of things like um, DNI, mobility, resiliency, sustainability, quality of life, economic growth, and things like that. But certainly the AEC industry is keeping me really busy because we're, as we mentioned earlier, we're getting hammered with, you know, digital twins and AR, VR, and a lot of emerging tech coming into an industry that 
is quite a late adopter of digital technology. So very, you know, a lot of change happening in the infrastructure world. I was wondering, Nick, what prompted your interest in this topic uh, around adaptive, the concept of adaptive, adoptive government, and how did you conduct the research that went into the report for the IBM Center? Yeah, it it actually started back in probably in 2017. I, I was doing a book for the British Computer Society on mastering digital business. So the, the book was about digital transformation. And as as I was writing the book, to close it out, I, I needed to talk about the future. You know, I talked about digital transformation and, you know, people-centric, et cetera, all the usual, all the usual stuff, you know, people talk about with with digital transformation. But at the end of the book, I wanted to kind of talk about what's next. And it kind of as as I started to look at that, I started to realize that, you know, we can't as a business or a government agency, we don't want to keep transforming all the time there's got to be a better way right and so it would it really became apparent that you know if you can build in some intrinsic agility um, a bit like a chameleon right if you can build that into your organization's operating model that's a far more efficient way as opposed to being on this kind of continuous treadmill cycle of transformation now it's not going to solve everything because there are going to be outliers where even if we're super agile and we've thought of most disruptive possibilities that are going to hit the business, there's always going to be something, some of those, um, you know, those black swan events that we just could not anticipate even in our design, right? Even if we're, we've designed a system that's very agile and adaptive. So you still do need to re you still do need that ability to react and think on the fly and innovate on the fly. But the idea is to kind of, use the 80-20 rule, right? If you can be adaptive for 80% of the time and do that as part of the way you operate, then maybe the 20% that that's less work to actually have to quickly, you know, solve for, you know, issues on the fly. Excellent. So, uh, Nick, to put adaptive government or adaptive enterprise into action, and let's stay within the, the government context, if you don't mind, it, departments and agencies should take what you have outlined in your report as a phased iterative approach. I was hoping you could tell us more about this approach and how you came up with it. Sure. And it's, it's um, basically it's a three phased approach. And I think in the, as we go through the discussion today, we'll, we'll kind of dive into each one. Um, but basically at the top level, obviously we need to kind of set that strategy and vision. What do we mean by adaptability you know, let's get that defined, an adaptive first mindset um, and kind of developing a strategy for adaptability. Step two is to kind of design and build for adaptability. So this is where we pull in those those physical and digital enablers, um, the tools in the toolkit and start to put them to work, right? And we pull them in and um, start developing these these newer systems or maybe we're we're just enhancing an existing system to make it more flexible. And then finally, what we're doing is is really kind of operating with the same mindset. So we're continuously innovating. You know, we're innovating for the unknowns. We have that trend radar and we're detecting not only emerging tech, but we're looking at those pestle forces that are going to come in the years ahead. And then we're, you know, constantly figuring out ways to Kind of accelerate the in, the innovation cycle, so it's kind of a, a loop, a circle, with basically you know strategy and vision, design and build, 
and then operate with continuous innovation. And it's kind of a feedback loop, but all focused on, on adaptability. I'd like to go through each one of these uh, phases, if you don't mind, Nick. And, and, and really what I want to do is let's take strategy and vision for adaptability and establishing that. What recommendations can you offer for how best to do this? Yeah, and there's, there's really some cultural, you know, I think as we go through this, um, there's a cultural item too, because it's one thing to actually put out a strategy, but I'm sure government leaders really want to get that strategy off the bookshelf and actually implement it, right? So there's a big human component here too. And so part of the recommendation here is not just to develop a strategy, but put into place those kind of mechanisms that are going to make it part of the culture of the organization. So, you know, kind of think about the adaptive first mindset, just like we had, you know, in years gone by, we all embraced a cloud first mindset and said, you know, let's try and do it in the cloud if we can versus buying packaged software, right? So there's these mindset changes. So the first step is really try and foster that adaptive first mindset Make it a strategic theme that the organization is placing emphasis and resources around. Make it clear to people that this is important. And, um, you know, it, it's not just a buzzword like flexibility or scalability. It's actually a broad management concept that we're applying to make the business of government even more effective, right? So that's um, beyond the beyond the mindset. You can start thinking about maybe a center of excellence or a a council, an adaptive government council, you know, sharing priorities and resources, use cases and case studies and best practices. And then when it comes to the, the strategy, you want not only a self-standing strategy for the department or agency, and you want that to look at both challenges, i.e. disruption, but also opportunities. How can that adaptive strategy help you deal with both your challenges and your opportunities? And then the second part to that, not only have that standalone adaptive strategy, um, but really embed it in your core mission and your IT strategy. So take your existing, your broader strategies um, for the department or agency, revisit those and see how you can embed adaptability as a key enabler or a core competency throughout those documents. So, Nick, what steps should a leader take to help identify and prioritize those opportunity areas you've alluded to where uh, adaptability can lend itself to furthering mission and business value? Yeah, I think one of, you know, one of the um, techniques I've used in the, in the past over, over many years has been really just a, a brainstorming session with, with different groups. And so, you know, having, um, you know, what we might call an innovation workshop and you know this is a this is something I've done in in the past for many years. So I've delivered over 250 of these workshops over the past 10 years or so, all around the world for both public and private sector entities. And the key there is to make it a brainstorming session, get the relevant people in the room, and um, have a very structured way of going about things. So basically, it's a it's a brainstorming session. And you're, you're allocating time to capture the ideas, hear the elevator pitch, and then vote on, you know, vote on the top ideas. So what, what I've found, you know, running those many, you know, for many years 
is um, if you have a good approach, you know, it doesn't have to be this approach. It could be whatever your your agency or department has, you know, grab that brainstorming approach that you have, that methodology, and then apply it, get folks in the room and start thinking about opportunity areas where adaptability can lend mission or business value. And you you can basically keep it very open and say, you know, we'll take we'll take all ideas. It could be a, a business idea, technology, process idea. It could be an incremental idea, very tactical that we can implement next week. Or it could be a big bet, something more strategic or disruptive that's going to take a lot of investment. So just basically just capture all those ideas with that group and then start to vote to prioritize. So do a bit of a a cost-benefit analysis, if you will. And you can do that very quickly with voting. You know, give folks two criteria to vote on for mission impact and then two criteria for, you know, risk and cost, right? And then basically you can come up with kind of a quad chart after the voting. You can lay all this out and you can quickly see what are the quick wins that are high business impact or mission impact, quick and easy to do versus the the must-haves, which are, you know, high high mission impact, but more risky, more costly. And so what I like to do with the innovation workshop is not only use it to, you know, brainstorm and capture ideas but also use the voting as a way to kind of get get to that cost-benefit matrix and lay things out so you see a portfolio of ideas and you can quickly pick off the quick wins for the near-term roadmap and then the must-haves for the longer-term roadmap. Excellent, excellent advice. Um, Your next area was design and build for adaptability, and I was wondering, Nick, if you could offer some recommendations in that area. Yeah, I think that goes back to the discussion we had earlier about the stack, right? And we, we talked about strategy, people, process, technology. Um, and we talked about those, those enablers, uh, physical uh, enablers, things like modular design and construction or digital enablers, things like, um, you know, the digital twins, the smart contracts, um, AI, obviously as well. And so as you kind of, you know, think about that framework, you can, you know, step one is think about the suite of enablers for your technology stack and kind of compile your own list of digital and physical enablers that you think can help your organization. And then figure out which of those you want to use right away, you know, back to the near-term implementation versus those that are, you know, maybe items you want to monitor on the radar for longer term. The next step is, you know, beyond just kind of making that list of enablers, start to build internal expertise in your organization around those enablers. So if you start to see something like um, AI, well, obviously AI ML, you know, you might say, gee, that's going to be the cornerstone of our adaptive strategy, then definitely start to, you know, build expertise around that and think about how can we apply AI ML to our adaptability agenda? How can it help us in that specific area? Right. And then also look for existing apps and processes. What can we modernize? What's running today that could really use some modernization? Not we're not modernizing for modernization's sake, just to bring it up to the latest tech, but how can we modernize it for adaptability so it can be a bit more adaptive as things change? That's another area that I think the innovation workshop could help, you know, flesh out. 
And then the other the other item is kind of combinations of enablers. So you can actually start to piece together different enablers to come up with a um, a more powerful solution. So if we think of um, this is kind of an interesting one back in the infrastructure world. You think about bridge inspection, right? Physical bridge inspection. And there's, you know, thousands of bridges, even if we pick one state in the country, you know, many states have 10, 20,000 bridges just in, in their state alone. So how could we take, you know, something like drone-based bridge inspection, couple that with a digital twin to give us that kind of system of record, and then use AI for defect analysis on the photogrammetry that's being pulled into the twin. So when you start to kind of, you know, couple these things together, you know, drones plus twins plus AI, you start to get some very powerful approaches that, um, you know, can really help us have a more agile way to operate and maintain our infrastructure, for example. A terrific example. Um, very interesting. It actually goes into my next question because it's very innovative what you just described uh, when you bring all those components together. I'm wondering, Nick, given your background, uh, the work that you did for the report, how would one go about operating an organization, an enterprise, under the guise of continuous innovation? If you, if this is the, if you're dealing with continuous disruption, uh, there's an opportunity to either sit still and be overwhelmed, or you can use it as an opportunity to continuously innovate. How, how would you have any advice in that area? Yeah, I think um, it, it's interesting because when we touch on adaptability. It really, if for an organization to excel at it, you st- you end up having to kind of innovate every part of the business, right? So, um, you know, to be agile um, and to bake that in, you've got to change. Like, let's take strategic planning for example. So, if that happens once a year right now, if we want to be more agile to respond to disruption, we need to actually innovate our strategic planning process as well, right? And maybe see if we can we update that on a quarterly basis is it something you know that we can um, make it more of a living document or a living strategy and kind of perpetually update so you start to see you if you see any internal processes that might be you know slowing things down or barriers to being agile and adaptive start to think about how we can how can we innovate those processes so how can we you know, increase the clock speed or the cadence of strategic planning? How can we make our emerging tech radar more effective? Go, you know, go beyond the, the typical emerging tech radar and think about those pestle forces that we talked about earlier, because now the disruption isn't just tech, it's um, pandemics, it's weather events, you know, it's, it's geopolitical impacts, um, societal impacts. So your tech radar needs to really be, you know, monitoring all of those forces, not just the the tech world. So there's a lot of things we need to kind of revisit and think about how do we, you know, how do we modify those or adapt those uh, for what we're what we're trying to do. The innovation workshops can be good for you know kind of just kind of sourcing ideas and prioritizing ideas, and it's not just um, ideas to minimize disruption, but it's ideas to maximize mission or business value too. And then really we almost have to accelerate innovation as well. How can we fast track those adaptability initiatives? You know, is there a way to short circuit 
some of the approval processes, but still still obviously do the due diligence and, and the necessary steps. But how can we fast track things to get them funded and, and implemented? Um, and then, yeah, and then f- a final thought, it's, it's really back to the ecosystem as well. So this is just like digital transformation, it's a team sport. So there's probably going to be a lot of players involved, um, both internally, um, you know, all the relevant internal stakeholders that you need to to work with, um, but then also that kind of outside, you know, vendor ecosystem as well. Mm, That's wonderful insight. Nick, I was wondering, what does the future hold in your perspective for realizing adaptive government, adaptive enterprise? Yeah, I think um, the the interesting thing here, I think, is that it's – it's not just about efficiency and uptime and keeping the lights on, um, but really it, you can think of adaptability as a core competency and a strategic enabler whenever you're dealing with any kind of change or disruption. And this can be you know, challenges and opportunities. So it's back to the discussion we had about resiliency and that being kind of a, a risk management strategy. Adaptability is really can support you and your organization for both risk management, but also for innovation. So it's part, it becomes a tool um, that you can use to innovate. So ultimately, if you can get to that end state of an adaptive government, what you're doing is you're actually meeting more of your goals, more of the time for more of your stakeholders. So it's kind of a, um, it's a very desirable end state. And really in the white paper, we talk about how these different enablers can help you can help you get there. Mm. Well, Nick, I, I want to thank you uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today and talking about the your report for the IBM Center. And I, I, I really appreciate you coming on and offering your insights around uh, adaptive government and adaptive adaptability as a core competency for government in the 21st century. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's, it's been a, a pleasure speaking with you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. A conversation with Nick Evans, author of the IBM Center Report, A Guide to Adaptive Government, Preparing for Disruption. You can get this and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.